0: All right, John chapter 1, verse 1. I'll be honest, this Advent thing has is, is been hard for me. I, I didn't grow up in uh, observing Advent. Our house was like jingle bells and mama kissing Santa, not like waiting in the darkness for Jesus to come. And so uh, it's been, this has like been a grind to like kind of put this together and what it means for us to sit in waiting. So... Let's open our hearts and open our Bibles and hear what the Lord has for us this evening. John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jump down to verse 9. The true light that gives light to everything was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, Lord God, I just um, confess to you, God, the weight of this idea, Lord, of you, Emmanuel, with us, your inbreaking out of your great love for us, Lord, what that meant throughout your scriptures and what it means for us today, Lord, the weight of that is more than I can communicate. And so, Holy Spirit, come. Would you meet us in this place, your people? Would you give us hearts open to receive from you? We bless you. We thank you, God. Would you be glorified in us tonight? In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Have you ever been disappointed with Christmas? Have you ever, whether you were a kid, maybe this was later in life, maybe uh, recently, you're disappointed with Christmas time. I experienced this uniquely as a parent. Um, I have three little girls. My oldest daughter, Grace, just a few years ago, she uh, communicated very eloquently and ferociously that she wanted, for Christmas, a Kindle Fire HD. And she had it picked out. She had the colors. She had like all of, uh, she was really selling this thing of why it was so good, all of the features, how much cheaper it was than an iPad, you know, all this different stuff. Uh, She made it abundantly clear this was the thing for Christmas. Uh, My wife's family, every other year, we get together and we, we usually get like a cabin and we bring all of the family together. And so there's like 20 of us gathered lots of kids uh, under the age of like 12, and it's insanity. Um, we gathered together, and her, her, my wife's family has this tradition uh, where they distribute all the gifts out to each person, and then you spend the rest of the day going one by one, uh, celebrating whatever the thing is that that person just opened, and then waiting for an hour for them to come back around and open the next thing, and they think this is amazing. I think it's crazy. Uh, so we're doing this, okay, this is a couple years ago, we're doing this and we're going around and so I can see my daughter, she's going like to all the packages, like trying to size up which one is the Kindle Fire HD. Like what, which one, which, how could they fit it into this box or that box and she kind of sets this one aside that she you know thinks is it. Now of course I know what's coming <laughs> or what's not coming. <laughs> And I'm watching this thing happen. And sure enough, on the last go around, 20 hours into this festivity, on the last go around, her cousin, who's one year younger than her, opens her last gift. And what is it? It's a Kindle Fire HD. And I see my daughter go, oh, <laughs> that's, that's neat. That's good. Good for her. And she's looking at her box still believing, still hoping. And she, of course, comes around, gets to that last gift. She opens it. It is a white pair of Converse high tops. And she smiles, and she kind of nods, and she sets it down. She holds it together for about two minutes, and then she runs upstairs. And I, as her father, am just, you know, crushed and so sad, so I turn on the TV and watch football. <laughs> no, no, no. I I went upstairs after her, and and she. <laughs> I get to her room, and she is bawling. She is, like, like, wailing, just sobbing, and I'm trying to comfort her, and, like, I really do love you, I promise, like, I didn't mean for this to be so terrible, like, all of these things, and she's, like, finally gets to the point where she's doing, like, the stutter cry, like, I'm just so sad that we did it get that thing, it, it, you know, she was so disappointed, Like, this this was like one of those scarring Christmases that comes up, like, often that we talk about. Like, it was a scarring... She was so... She had such high expectations, such, like, specific hopes that she was holding on to and completely disappointed. Tonight, we um, are leapfrogging off last week's talk that Tim gave and did a great job that... For us to understand the Christmas story rightly, we have to understand the people that lived in that story. And Tim, last week, took us through the the long and the really sad history of Israel and all that they went through as a people, that we might understand what it is to have this kind of this concept, this life story as the people of God. And and we're leapfrogging off of that into the time where Christ appears and lives out uh, his life of ministry with the people of Israel. Um, We learned last week that the context of the nation of Israel is incredibly important. Um, This was a people chosen by God, but they spent most of their existence in poverty, oppression, death, slavery. But this was also a nation that was waiting in hope. Like they had this really specific hope because a promise had been given to them a promise by God that He Himself would rule over them and make them a great nation. Not only that, they would be a model. To all other nations of how a nation under God would, would live and operate and be. This, this promise is found in Genesis chapter 12. It says, now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so you shall be a blessing Isn't that a great plan? I will make you a great nation. I will be with you. I will make you a great nation. I'll make your name great. I will bless you so you, in turn, will be a blessing to everyone around you. That's God's plan. So even as Israel is going through this crazy journey, this crazy existence, the plan that God would be king and would guard them and cultivate them and grow them, that was their their hope. That was what they were holding on to. This wasn't a plan of world domination. This wasn't a plan of one empire conquering every empire. This was a, a plan of blessing, a way to bless the entire world through one nation. That was the plan. But from the very beginning, from the very beginning, Israel has king envy. They have king envy. First Samuel chapter 8, uh, which takes place... Once Israel's finally settled into this promised land that God has given them, it tells us how Israel demands a king of their own. And they want a king for a very specific purpose. Okay, listen to their story. This is 1 Samuel chapter 8, starting in verse 4. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old. And your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights." Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king. He said, This is what a king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. Listen to this type of king. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses. They will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest. And still others to make weapons of war and equip, equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields. And will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage. And give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys. He will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flock And you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. But the Lord will not hear you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said. We want a king over us. Why? Because then we will be like all the other nations With the king to lead us and to go out before us to fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it for the Lord before the Lord. And the Lord answered him, listen to them and give them a king. Israel says to to God, we don't want you as our king. We are a nation now. We are our own nation And we don't want to be that model nation thing you were talking about. We want to be like every other nation. They say, no, we want a king over us. Then we will be like every other nation with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. In other words, they're saying, we want a king who keeps our nation from being conquered. Meanwhile, goes out and conquers other nations, expands our power And our authority expands our empire. And God, in his extravagant grace and love, he never strong arms his people. He warns them. And then he lets them decide. Be careful what you ask for, he says. And then he gives them what they ask for. And of course, this does not go well Outside of the rule of King David, which is literally like a blip on the existence of Israel, their kings are fools, they're cowards, they're pagans, they're hungry for power. Pretty much exactly what God warned them would happen with an earthly king. Israel becomes burdened by their kings instead of blessed by their kings so they might bless other nations. So Israel ends up in slavery, exile, ruled by oppressive empires over and over and over and over. But during this tumultuous life that Israel is leading, another promise is given to them, a promise of a redeemer, of a rescuer, a messiah, a new kind of king, Psalm 2 says this is a king who will rule over those who oppress Israel. Psalm 45 says this is an eternal king. His his kingship will never end. Psalm 72 says he's a king who rules in righteousness and justice, who hears the cries of his people, a kind-hearted, loving king. Just imagine if we, if we remember their history, just imagine what the hope was that the people of Israel had for this coming king, this rescuer, how in much anticipation and expectation there must have been for this great new leader. This is the context. This is the posture of waiting that Israel had. It was a great hope. It was a very specific Hope. And it's worth a pause to ask us, what are you waiting for? What is your great hope? What are your great expectations? If we cannot identify with Israel's longing to be rescued by their king, then we can be tempted to set our expectations on this oversimplification Of Christmas, this oversimplification of Christ coming into the world. Christmas can become this silly, superfluous thing in our life something to expand our comfort, our popularity, even our power, rather than what it's meant to be, and that is to bring this hope of being rescued in Christ. And through him, blessing all other people. See, that's the Christmas story. That there's a hope in us, God's people, to be rescued in Christ that we might bless all nations, that we might bless San Francisco. Here's the problem. If our longings and our expectations are not that, are not tied to that being rescued in Christ, then you will surely be disappointed with Jesus. You will surely be disappointed if you have other expectations for what he came for. And that's what we see with Israel. When Christ arrives, he's much different than what the people of Israel expected. Remember, this was an eternal king. This was a king who would rule over nations that oppressed Israel. This was a king of righteousness and justice. This is a powerful king. But that's not what arrives. There is no cosmic rebel leader striding in on a white horse with a sword declaring war on Rome and Caesar and Herod. Instead, Christ arrives, instead of arriving in authority, Christ arrives in vulnerability as a baby. Literally, like, the least intimidating, the least threatening being on the planet. Even, like, baby animals are more dangerous than baby humans. Like, the least threatening thing on the planet. Instead of arriving in, in grandeur, in splendor, in wealth, in power, Jesus arrives in poverty. And the result of this, this hope, this specific hope that Israel has and what actually shows up, the result is a disconnect between Israel and Jesus. A major disconnect between God's people and their rescuer. They don't see him. They don't understand him. And we can have that same challenge with Jesus. Could it be that our disappointment with who God is has more to do with where we've set our hope and expectation than actually who God is? When we don't receive him for what he came for, what he declares... But we instead insert our agenda, our, our personal happiness, like comfort, like all these different things into Jesus' story. When we begin to insert those things, it's easy to be confused what Jesus is talking about. It's easy to be frustrated, and it's inevitable to be disappointed. This is what happens with Israel. Israel is confused by Jesus. There are countless stories through the Gospels as you read through of Jesus' teaching and people just saying, what are you talking? What are you talking about? Like, that makes no sense at all. One that we'll look at is this story in John chapter 3 with a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a member of the Jewish ruling council, right? Okay, so he was, he was well-educated. He had memorized all of Scripture, He was wealthy, he was elite, he was powerful. And he has questions for Jesus. Jesus is now in his ministry stage. He's doing things people have never seen done before. He's saying things people have never heard before. And so Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. He's got questions. And they get into this interesting conversation. I'll let you read it. It's in John chapter 3, where... Jesus goes into this dialogue of what it is to be, yes, born in the flesh, but born in the spirit. And we are both of those things. And that actually to come into the kingdom that Christ is bringing, the kingdom of God, it requires that we be born again. This is where that term comes from, being born all over again. And of course, Nicodemus is like weirded out. Like, wait, what do you mean? Like, You go back in? Like, how's, I don't see how that works. That's gross. Um, Of course, this throws Nicodemus totally for a loop. And finally, Nicodemus asks Jesus, how can this be? I don't get what you're talking about. Listen to the way Jesus replies. This is verse 10 in John chapter 3. Jesus says, you are Israel's teacher. And do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify of what we have seen, but still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you don't believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Nicodemus can't wrap his mind around what Jesus is talking about, this kingdom of heaven stuff. This spirit versus flesh stuff, he's he's lost. As a member of the Jewish ruling council, he, he would have spent his lifetime studying, memorizing, practicing, meditating, protecting the law of God. Nicodemus knew what the word said. He knew how to act, how to behave. But this was spiritual stuff that he was lost on. The heavenly things, as Jesus puts it, seem to be of utmost importance to Christ and a complete mystery to Nicodemus. And this is where we can get tripped up on Jesus too. Jesus is a different kind of king. He's bringing a different kind of kingdom. This is why it so, can be so confusing. If we only see Jesus... As a good moral teacher, which almost all of our culture is willing to do at this point, there aren't too many people that say Jesus was a jerk. People, almost everyone, will say Jesus was a very good teacher, taught very good moral lessons, and listen—that is true. This is absolutely true. It's true for us. I mean, these his teachings shape our life, but he's more than that. And he wants more for us than just to sit and hear and learn lessons as school children about etiquette and our behavior and how to be nice to each other. He longs for much more for us. Remember, we are meant to be God's people who are a blessing to the entire world. That actually has to form in us. That's different than just teaching lessons. Jesus is teaching us more than how to act. He's teaching us how to be human rightly, and that goes beyond the academic stuff. This is the spiritual stuff, and still, for some reason, Jesus is not only confusing for the people of Israel, as his ministry continues, there's this momentum growing, and Disappointment is coming in a big, big way. As Jesus' time on earth continues, his ministry grows. People are beginning to suspect, maybe this is the guy. Maybe this is the guy we heard about. Maybe this is the one that's going to fulfill. You know, there had been many Messiah-type people who had come around and tried to start rebellions and tried to set Israel free and tried to overthrow governments. There had been many that had come and been squashed. But this guy was different, totally different. On several occasions, the people who are following Jesus, they want to make him their king, like actually force him by force to be their king. In John chapter 6, it tells us that after Jesus feeds 5,000 people out of this very small amount of food, that they are ready to take him by force, carry him, to Jerusalem and put him on the throne. Why? why? Why was he different? Why were the people so convinced that this might be their coming king, their rescuer? Why was their hope so alive? Remember their story. They had lived under oppression for so long, been ruled by other nations almost their entire existence. They'd been subjected to murder and slavery and poverty for almost their entire existence. But now, this guy shows up. Listen, he, he feeds everyone around him until their bellies are full for free. He heals sick people just by touching them. He calms storms, waves, and wind with a word He challenges the elite of the social class. He even raises dead people back to life. And they're thinking, this is it. This is it. This is our guy. Who can stop him? This is like when you're playing pickup basketball and I'm on your team. And then the 6'4 guy walks in and you're like, Dave, go take a rest. We'll take him. Who can stop him? He's 6'4". It's like this anticipation, this excitement. Let's make him our king, they're thinking. And listen, with this guy, we can defeat Herod. With this guy, we we can defeat Caesar. With this guy and what he's doing, we may even be able to overthrow Rome. We get our nation back. Maybe we're that great nation again that God was talking about. Even Jesus' disciples get caught up in this king business. They start arguing with each other who will be at Jesus' right hand, what the pecking order is going to be in the new kingdom when Christ is made king. They think they have positioned themselves very well for this new endeavor. They have positioned themselves very well for this new kingdom. Listen to what happens in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But who do you say I am, he asked. What about you? And Simon Peter, of course, jumps up, and he says, You are the Messiah. You are the Son of the living God. Check out Jesus' reply. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh or blood, but by my Father in heaven. Now the good stuff. I tell you that you, Peter, That you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. Then he ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah, and you can just see the disciples like, yes, he's going to give us the keys. We get the keys. Whatever I do, it's like connected to heaven. This is better than I even expected. The excitement, the anticipation. This is going to be awesome. And then Jesus drops the mic right on their faces. Listen to what he says. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now Peter took Jesus aside, which is just, just funny. Peter took Jesus aside and he rebuked him. (laughs) That's <laughs> literally the dumbest thing you can do as a human. Rebuke Jesus. He pulls Jesus aside. He says, listen, bro, come here. Never, Lord, never, he said, this shall not happen to you. And Jesus, maybe the best reply of all time, <clears throat> turned to Peter and he said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. Now check this out. Listen to these next words. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Okay, listen. Stay right there. If you're experiencing disappointment with God, would you just take a moment? Would you just underline this? Would you highlight it? And would you meditate on it? Would you have an honest prayer in your heart with your Savior? Do you have the things of God, the concerns of God, in mind? Or are your concerns merely human concerns? Gosh, it's it's hard to sit with. This is a, a game changer for the disciples and all the people who put their hope in Jesus. This is a game changer. It's like my daughter on that day when she opened the box and it was tennis shoes instead of the things she hoped for. This is like, wait, what? Uh, we had great expectations for you. We put a lot of hope in you. We've been really talking you up to everybody for a long time. And you're just going to go lay down? Yeah. Yeah. Israel thought that they were getting a cosmic revolutionary king, not a suffering servant. Israel thought they were getting a rescuer, not a martyr. Israel thought they were getting the lion, not the lamb. Remember, back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, there was this longing in Israel's heart as a nation. To have a king like all other kings, to be like all other nations. This was supposed to be their time where they become that great nation. But Jesus is a different kind of king. He didn't come to create an earthly empire like every other earthly empire, He came to bring a heavenly empire. What a disappointment. This must have been for the people of God. See, Jesus is focused on God's concerns, not human concerns. We can see this in his teaching, Matthew chapter 5. This might be one of the most beautiful ways that, that Christ explains to us what it means to be the people in this kingdom. A kingdom built not on power or, or on wealth or even on our own happiness. But instead, built on Christ. The section of scripture is called the Beatitudes. Often the language can be confusing when we read it, right? It says, blessed are the poor in spirit for they will inherit the kingdom of God. What does the poor in spirit mean? <laughs> and so I'm going to actually read a translation from the message written by Eugene Peterson, and he translated scripture into modern language, to our context. What it would have meant to those people hearing it in our ears. And as we read this teaching here, think about how this not only informs you, but it actually forms you. It's meant to show you how to be a human the right way. And this is what it says. This is in Matthew chapter 5, starting verse 1, message translation. When Jesus saw his ministry drawing huge crowds, he climbed a hillside. Those who were apprenticed to him, they, the committed, they climbed with him. Arriving at a quiet place, he sat down and taught his climbing companions. And this is what he said. You are blessed when you are at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more of God and his rule. You're blessed when you feel lost, uh, when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you embrace, be embraced by the one most dear to you. You are blessed when you're content With just who you are, no more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink and the best meal you've ever ate. You're blessed when you care At the moment of being careful, full of care, you find yourselves cared for. You're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and your heart put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete and fight That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. You're blessed. When you're committed, your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. Not only that, count yourselves blessed every time people put you down, throw you out, Speak lies about you to discredit me. What it means is that the truth is too close for comfort, and they are uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens. Give a cheer even. For though they don't like it, I do. And all heaven applauds. And know that you are in good company. My prophets and witnesses Have always gotten into this kind of trouble. What a different kind of kingdom. What a different kind of king. What a different kind of people Jesus is talking about. Notice here that there isn't any empire language. Jesus is not establishing an empire like those here on earth. This was a different kind of king, a different kind of kingdom. Jesus has actually taken the empire mentality and turned it completely on its head. And this must have been incredibly disappointing to some people. This is not what they were expecting. This is not what they had hoped for. So here is one of the challenges for us, following Jesus today in our context. See, we are not like Israel. We are not a refugee people. We do not live an oppressed life. If you're in this room, you do not live in poverty. In fact, we have become the empire. The empire that overthrows other nations. We are the superpower of the world for now. As with every empire, ours will crumble Someday, and some other people group will step into that position. Here's why we must hear Jesus' words. What Jesus describes in the Beatitudes is a different way of being in this world, not just acting, not just behavior, an actual a different way of, of being human in this world, a different kind of people that reflect a different kind of king and a different kind of kingdom. That's why Christ came. It's the opposite of the earthly empire existence. It means that if you're rich, you're to become poor for your neighbor, even for your enemy. It means if you are powerful, you are to give away your power for those who have no power at all. It means if you are in a position of justice, you are to fight for those that do not receive justice. It's a call to righteousness, enduring love. It's a kingdom of self-sacrifice, just as our king sacrificed himself. In short, we are the people of God. Christ is our king. And we are commissioned by him to be a blessing to the world, to the city of San Francisco, to your neighborhood and district, to your building where you live, even at the cost of your own comfort, even at the cost of your own power maybe at the cost of your wealth. If Christmas for you is waiting, hoping, longing for anything other than this kingdom, you're sure to be disappointed. Merry Christmas. Maybe this Christmas, as we try to live into the story of Israel, maybe there's an opportunity Maybe there's an opportunity for us to give more of ourselves away than we ever have before. And experience more hope and dependency on Christ than we ever have before. But no matter where you are in this journey tonight, here's the hope we all have in Christ. That he has come. And he has brought with him the kingdom of heaven. And no matter what your hope or expectation this season, Christ is greater. We may feel like we're losing something of our empire. Praise God for that. That might be the very best thing that can happen to you. Christ is greater. So may we receive Christ, our king, that the whole earth may be blessed by us, his people. Let's pray.